If you have a Bible, why don't you stand? We'll read together God's Word. Mark chapter 6, where we are. If you're a visitor, we're going through the Gospel of Mark. We've landed in chapter 6, and we're picking it back up after being away for three weeks. I'll tell you a little bit about chapter 5 as we go along in Mark chapter 6. Grass withers and the flowers fade, but the Word of our God stands forever. Let's begin right there, verse 1. <clears throat> He went away from there and came to his hometown, and his disciples followed him. And on the Sabbath, he began to teach in the synagogue, and many who heard him were astonished, saying, Where did this man get these things? What is the wisdom given to him? How are such mighty works done by his hands? Is not this the carpenter, the son of Mary? brother of James and Joseph and Judas and Simon, and are not his sisters here with us? And they took offense at him. Jesus said to them, A prophet is not without honor except in his hometown and among his relatives and in his own household. He could do no mighty work there except that he laid his hands on a few sick people and healed them. He marveled because of their unbelief. And he went about among the villages teaching. Join me as we pray. Father, I pray that you would help every person here that thinks she is a disciple and is not. Pray that you would bring about conversion. I pray for every hurting, wandering man or woman by grace through your spirit. Bring them to yourself today. We need a miracle today. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. <clears throat> I can gladly say there is no place like home. Go on vacation for a little while and get back home. It's good to be back home to your own little, little house, your own little bed. I even like seeing that wore-out dog that I got. Good to be home. Go on vacation. Connie and I uh, went for a couple of weeks gone. If you have small kids at home, you call what you do in the summertime going on vacation, but what you're doing is just working in another state. You won't have vacations. You get rid of those kids. Then you can have vacation. It's good to be home. Even with Connie in Mississippi, that's where she is right now, in Brookhaven, Mississippi. And I know my wife enough to know that being there in Mississippi, even though the circumstances are not great, her father is still in rehab. They haven't gotten him out. Hope to get him home soon sometime. Even though it's not the best of circumstances to be there, I know my wife en enough to know that for her soul, it's good to be there at home. It's good to go home. That's what we find going on in the passage. Jesus is going home. Chapter 5 is a great chapter. Chapter 5 crescendos in Jesus' ministry. It's at Capernaum. That's where his base of operations is. 
There in Capernaum, he's done wonderful things. People have been healed. Demons have been cast out. And at the very top of all the things he did in chapter 5, he brought back from the dead Jairus' daughter. It's a miracle. Chapter 5 closes with this wonderful story of his miraculous work in Capernaum. And chapter 6 opens up completely different. For the first time in Jesus' ministry, the crowd is against him. Now, heretofore, we've had some people, individuals, religious people, the Pharisees and the scribes would be against Jesus, but the people were always with him. Chapter 6, he goes down to Nazareth, and this time the crowd is against him. And of all the crowds that have been with Jesus, this crowd, his home team, should have been with him. And I've been thinking, why, why is this story here? You have to think like that when you read the Bible. Okay, what, what, is, what am I supposed to learn? Why is this story here? The Gospel of Mark is written by a man named John Mark. John Mark got all his information from Peter. So Peter was there when this happened in Mark chapter 6. John Mark got his, Peter, uh, got his message from Peter. Mark is writing this. It's written for a Roman church to, to teach them about Jesus. Why would he include this story in teaching about Jesus? This is not a victory narrative. In fact, this is an embarrassment. So I've been rolling that around in my mind. Why? Why is this here? And I think the key is in verse 1. In verse 1, we find out that this, this is not just another trip home. When you read the Gospel of Luke, Luke, we find out Jesus had already been home once. It did not go well. He seems to have gone there by himself this time is a second trip home. It's not just a trip home to see his mom and his brothers and sisters. Verse 1 tells us that the disciples, they followed with him. Yeah, yeah, this is a teaching trip. Something is going to happen down there in Nazareth. Something's going to happen there that's going to teach the 12 what it really means to follow Jesus. Remember now, up to this point, all the way into chapter 5, up to this point, it's been nothing but, but miracles. It's been this sort of happy mayhem around Jesus. Things are wonderful. Who wouldn't want to be with that hero? They, they, they've seen his power They've seen what he can do. They've seen how people are reacting up to chapter 5. It has been a wonderful time. And now Jesus is going to take his followers down. Let's go down to Nazareth, learn some things, experience some of the pain, experience some, some of the perils, some of the struggle of following Jesus. Why does he do that? Why does he take them down there? Because up to this point, it's been nothing but enjoyable, and they might have had the wrong impression. 
Jesus took them down there to, to stiffen their resolve to get some steel in their spines because there are hard days ahead. Now, there is not a person in here that is not facing some sort of odd difficulty along the road of following Jesus. And this story is written here for your benefit, for your growth, to give you strength, to give you courage so that you can stand by a decision, or to give you courage so that you can actually make that decision. To make the decision that's a hard decision, to, to walk through pain, to live your life for the glory of God. Now, don't you? I'll ask it another way. Do you? Do you want to be a disciple of Jesus? Are you a disciple of Jesus? If so, let's go to the story now. Let's go to the story and join him in his rejection. Let's step very quickly. You'll see that knowing Jesus, if you want to write down a theme, this is what I would write down. Knowing Jesus means learning discipleship. If you claim to know Jesus, if you're a Christian, that's what you're claiming, then, then you must learn discipleship. Let's step in slow, and then we'll pick up the pace as we go. Here's the first point, number one. I'll make it easy. Discipleship is not easy. Discipleship is not easy, and you might want to write beside that, but it's worth it. In fact, I have it in my notes. Discipleship is not easy, and I wrote up to the side, but it's worth it. Let me show you where I get that. Join me there in verse 1. Verse 1, he went away from there. There is Capernaum. Capernaum is up in the northern part of the Sea of Galilee. That's where his base of operations is. Born in Bethlehem, raised in Nazareth, working in Capernaum. So he went away from there, verse 1, and he came to his hometown. We know that's Nazareth because we've introduced, been introduced to Jesus as a Nazarene in the book of Mark. We know that several times. That's where he was from. Nazareth is about 25 miles from Capernaum. If you're riding in a car, 30, 35 minutes. If you're on foot, it's going to take you a day or two, probably two days to get there. You can walk there. He goes there with his disciples. You get down to Nazareth. The town is about 50 acres. It's about the size of our campus. It'll be the town. It's a nowhereville. It's never mentioned, not one time. Nazareth is never mentioned in the Old Testament. You don't find it in any Jewish writings. It's just not a place you want to go. I mean, even Nathaniel. Remember John chapter 1, when Nathaniel hears that, that this new so-called Savior is from Nazareth, Nathaniel says, can anything good come out of Nazareth? Why? Let's pause here. Why was Jesus, why would Jesus have a hometown like this? If you're going to be a conqueror, why not Rome? Having a town like this, coming out of a town like this, shows us the humanity of Jesus, shows us Jesus meek and mild, shows us Jesus who is fully human, tempted in every way that you are tempted and yet never falling to temptation. Understanding the law of God. This is important for, for Christians to know. This is not just Jesus dying in your place. Jesus living in forgotten town in your place. 
Here is Jesus earning righteousness that you can't earn. Here is Jesus living in our place. Jesus living in our place leads his followers, his disciples, down to Nazareth. He takes them into a, an awkward and hostile environment. He's already been there once. He knows how bad it is, how people are going to react. He goes and gets his disciples. They all go down there in mass. And he takes them into an awkward and hostile environment. That's where he takes us. That's where we live our Christianity. I mean, listen, what we do on Sundays is a beautiful and good thing to do. We gather on Sunday mornings because that is the day of resurrection. It is the Lord's day. If Jesus was crucified on a Friday, he kept the Sabbath completely on the Saturday. God raised him from the dead on the Sunday as new covenant people. That's when we worship. So we come together on Sunday to read the Bible, to sing together, to worship God, to have our souls filled, to, to abandon sin, to throw ourselves on the mercy of God, to be encouraged by one another. That's why we do it as a congregation, to encourage each other, to fellowship to press one another on, but we don't live here. We live out there. That's where Jesus took his disciples, where we live. We live out there if you're a student in school. It's a hostile environment. College doesn't get any better. If you think college is bad, where do you go to work? Now you got money on the line. There are a lot of men and women here that are working places. The companies are, they're increasingly pressing you to affirm things you can't affirm as a Christian and you find yourself in a tough spot. That's where he takes us. He takes us there. You see, we, we, we learn there. We learn how to handle disappointment. We we learn how to handle betrayal. We learn how to live with hurt. We learn how to walk through it. We learn to get hit in the mouth and, and be able to get back up and stand there with Jesus to, to follow him, you see. Paul, when he abandoned his old life, when he put that down after the road to Damascus experience, he starts writing, and we have most of his writings the New Testament is about half of Paul's writings. And he wrote to the church at Philippi in Philippians chapter 3, verse 8. He talks about what he gave up. And he says, I, I, Philippians 3, I count everything as a loss for the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. For, for his sake I have suffered the loss of all things. I count them rubbish in order that I might gain Christ. Brothers and sisters, discipleship, discipleship is not easy, but it's worth it. Let's pick up the pace a little bit. Give me a second point about discipleship. Number two, discipleship is information. It's two things, information and imitation. Discipleship is information, things you got to learn, and imitation, things you must copy. You see it there in verses 1 and 2. Jesus takes his disciples down to Nazareth to get there in verse 2. On the Sabbath, the day of worship, he goes into the synagogue. Now, this is his home synagogue. Everybody would know him there. 
In a synagogue, any qualified Jewish man was able to read the Torah. He could read the law and then explain it. Jesus is visiting. His reputation has gone on before him. They hand the scroll to him. If you read this in Luke, he takes the scroll. He reads Isaiah 61, which is the messianic passage. It's, it's the message of Jesus. He rolls the scroll back up, hands it over to him and says, Now today you've heard and seen this fulfilled in me. That's why they're going to be astonished in a little bit. They're given information. Now, a couple of things I want you to see. You've got to have both. As a disciple, we must have information. But if all you have is information, you become one that knows good doctrine, but you're not living it out. But if all you have is together imitating someone, what you have is good friendship without it being undergirded with good doctrine. So we need both, a balance of, of both. We need to not only know what the Bible teaches us about Jesus, what does it say, we need to also have people in our lives that we are walking with that are maybe a little bit ahead of us that can teach us things. Let me ask you a question. What are you doing as, what are you doing as a disciple in those two areas? What are you learning? What are you getting by way of information what are you learning by way of imitation? Who are you learning from? Are you getting information from the Bible? Are you, you invested in the Bible, spending time in God's Word, daily and weekly basis, here at church showing up, singing the songs, hearing sermons out of the Bible? Are you, are you learning it from the community group and a larger a group that is a setting where the Bible is opened and discussed or, and even cut down into a D group where you have somebody that you are, are going deep into God's Word with and praying for one another, showing up at foundations on a Wednesday night. Who, who are you learning from? Not just information. You've got to have information, but you've got to have somebody. You're, I mean, we all learn from, from someone. I have a couple of men's groups that I'm in, and those are my discipleship groups. The pastors at Hickory Grove have our own discipleship group that we hold one another accountable. Across the country, I have other pastors that I'm a small group with. I try to learn from, from, try to learn from men that have gone on before. I've just finished a book. Mostly I do that with books and biography. Just read a biography, a new one out by John Meacham about Abraham Lincoln. The name of it is, And There Was Light. So much I didn't know about Abraham Lincoln, about his upbringing, about the fact that the church he went to as a kid was a Baptist church. Learned just from his life how to walk through such adversity. Or, or information. I've been reading a book by Nancy Piercy uh, called the, to the Toxic War on Masculinity. Toxic War on Masculinity by Nancy Piercy. And, and in that book, she takes the culture and has an such a great writer, examining the culture and then taking the Bible and teaching how to think through the lens of the Bible at the culture and its world masculinity. You see, we need information. We need the Bible. We need good doctrine. But we also need imitation, people that we're walking with when it comes to discipleship. Discipleship is information and imitation. I'm going to give you a third consideration of discipleship. Here's a third thing, <clears throat> number three. Discipleship means a lot of humility. 
a lot of humility. Let me read it to you in verses 2 and 3. Verse 2, Jesus takes the Torah and, and reads it in the synagogue and teaches it. And then in verse 3 starts some of the reaction. Let me just read it. Let me just read it to you. And on the Sabbath day, he began to teach in the synagogue, and many who heard him were astonished, saying, there are five rhetorical questions. Where did this man get these things? What is the wisdom given to him? How are such mighty works done by his hands? Is not this the carpenter, the son of Mary, the brother of James and Joseph and Judas and Simon? Are these not his sisters here with us? And they took offense. Let's just step through, uh, just step through the verses. The first word you find there is that they were astonished at what he said. Astonished. They were amazed at him. Let me pause here and say being amazed at Jesus is not the same as being converted by Jesus. Having, a, having an experience with Jesus is not the same as having your life changed by Jesus. If what you have for your Christianity is what you can look back on that happened to you when you were nine or ten years old, and there's not been this life of growing in Christ, that was not conversion, that was an experience. You see, being astonished is not the same as being converted. I'll give you the fruit in the picture because in verses 2 and 3, they start with the five rhetorical questions being dismissive. You know rhetorical questions are more statements than they are anything else. You can see, see them there in verse 2. Notice the questions. Where did this man, this man, they know just who he is. Where did this fellow, who does he think? I mean, when we say, who does he think he is? We don't mean that as a question. We mean that as a statement. That's what they're saying here. Who, who does he think he is? What about this wisdom? Where does he get this? He hasn't been to college. We know his background. We hear about these miracles. Where's the work? How are they done? How are these miracles done? We've heard, we hadn't seen any. We hadn't seen any. Then it turns personal in verse 3. It gets nasty in verse 3. Verse 3, isn't this the carpenter? Carpenter, you could work with wood or stone or bricks, building yoke for oxen, a handyman. He's just a worker. You're like us. You know better than us. Then it turns real negative. Isn't this Mary's? They've all heard the rumors. This is the only time in the Bible, only time in the Bible, Jesus is called Mary's son. It is meant as, as disrespectful. Jewish man would be identified by who his father was, and they say, isn't this Mary's? It's funny, I'm reading about Abraham Lincoln. He faced the same thing in, in his campaign because his mother was a woman that didn't have great morals, and they always thought maybe he was illegitimate, that's the, that's the thing that they're saying about Jesus. Isn't this Mary's? We know his brothers and sisters. They named several of them. Two of the names in verse 3 we know, James and Judas. We know it is Jude. Those two led in the New Testament church, wrote New Testament books of the Bible. The others we don't know anything about. And they disgrace him. 
And the thing is, Jesus knew that would happen. He brought his disciples down to Nazareth so that they could watch him stand there and take that. One of the hardest lessons about discipleship is humility. And, and the greatest example we have of humility is the Lord Jesus himself. That's the point that Paul makes in one of the beautiful passages in Philippians. We love Philippians chapter 2, and we should. It's a great doctrine that talks about the crucifixion of Jesus and the emptying, the incarnation of Jesus. But the reason Paul talks about it is to give us an example. Listen to what he says in, verses, uh, in Philippians 2, verses 5, 6, 7, and 8. Paul says, have, have this mind. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped. He emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of man, being found in human form. He humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Paul says, have that, have that mind. Yes, Jesus is our Savior. Yes, Jesus is our substitute. But Jesus is our example. Look, you, you know you're growing as a disciple, not when you can name all the books of the Bible and you've read it through several times. I hope you'll do that. Do you know you're growing as a disciple when you are less offended than you were before. When it takes more to offend you. Why? Because your pride has diminished. You know you're growing as a disciple when you are less offended and more forgiving. You know why you forgive? Because you remember. You remember the offense that you made against God and how God and his goodness forgave you, his grace forgave you because of what Jesus has done for you on the cross. You remember and think of the ocean of grace that was poured on you and you can drop a thimble on somebody else. You know you're growing as a disciple when you're less offended and more forgiving. Are you easily, are you easily offended? Do you have a quick temper? Do you hold grudges against people? You should ask right now, you should ask God to give you more grace. You see, discipleship means a lot of humility. Let me give you something else to consider. Here's a fourth point. Number four, discipleship. Discipleship is cross-centered. Discipleship, we never go very far from the cross. We always keep it in sight. The cross of Jesus is the centerpiece of our salvation. Let me show you where I get that. Look at the reaction of the people in verse 3. So there's several questions in verses 2 and 3, five rhetorical questions. Come down to the end of verse 3 and look at their reaction. Their reaction, verse 3, is they took offense. See that phrase, took offense? It's two English words that come from one Greek word. It's the Greek word scandalon. You can even hear it. Scandal. They were scandalized by Jesus. That word scandal, scandalon. That was a stumbling block. 
Jesus and especially his cross is a stumbling block. You know, the Apostle Paul would be aware of this, and he takes that word, brings it forward, and you can draw a straight line from, from this passage right here to 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 23 and 24. He uses the same word. And Paul says, we preach Christ crucified. It was a scandal, a stumbling block for the Jews. It's folly to the Gentiles. But to those who are called, both to Jews and Greeks, it's the power of God. It is the wisdom of God. Look, everybody here has an opinion. Everybody here has an opinion about Jesus. More specifically, everybody here has an opinion about the gospel of Jesus. Now, here's what I want to do in about 90 seconds, maybe two minutes. I'm just going to explain the gospel. And as you listen, I want to ask you to make a decision. Is this the power and the wisdom of God to you? Or do you take offense at this? Here it comes. The Bible is written and teaches us about God. God is a holy God who created everything we see, created you. You have been created in the image of God. That's why I respect you. You have the image of God. You are due dignity and respect. The image of God in us, both male and female, has been disfigured by our own sin. Our sin is not just that we do things wrong or make mistakes. Our sin is an actual offense to God. It's a crime against God. A crime that must be punished. You and I understand justice. We like justice. We want justice for ourselves. Just think if you were infinitely more holy than you are, God, who is infinitely more holy than us, must have justice. So that crimes against him must be punished. That punishment, the Bible says, is death. The wages of sin is death. If you sin, you will die. That's a terrible thing. It's bad news. But as Christians, we believe the gospel, which is good news. The good news means that God, seeing the situation that we are in, is also a loving God who gives us his son, Jesus. Jesus, who is fully man, we talked about that earlier, lives in our place, earns righteous, being in complete relationship to God, fulfills all the law of God, does everything right. That life is important because he goes to the cross, and at the cross, that's where the punishment is poured out. So that Jesus not only lives in our place, he dies receiving the wrath of God, the punishment of God. You, you might say it like this, that God killed his son in your place. So Jesus takes the wrath of God. God in his goodness, Jesus takes the wrath of God. God in his goodness raised Jesus from the dead three days later on a Sunday, raised him from the dead. That means that the sacrifice is received, that the gospel worked, that the wrath of God is turned aside, that there is victory in Jesus. Jesus is then ascended into heaven and sits at the right hand of God. Now, that's the information of the gospel. Everybody here makes a decision. Is that the power and the wisdom of God to you? Or are you offended by that? The way that gospel becomes yours is the word faith. When you believe that Jesus died in your place. You turn from your sin, whatever it might be, and you put your faith in Jesus. Faith. 
fact, that's how I want to end it. My last point, faith. Discipleship operates in faith. Join me there in verse 4 after he sees there that they're offended. Verse 4, Jesus says, A prophet is not without honor. This is a saying of the time. A prophet is not without honor except in his hometown and among his relatives and in his own household. He's repeating a saying that was said in Greek and also in philosophy. It's, it's a saying that we would understand like this. Familiarity breeds contempt. That's what we would say. Familiarity. You just get used to people. Take them for granted. Get used to people around us. You start seeing cracks in the armor. You just take it for granted. That's true with us. It should not be with Jesus. I mean, if you come up in Ica Grove, you're here your whole life, you can see it, you just sort of take for granted. This is how church is. If you're around people that think well of you or your family, you just sort of take it for granted. You take them for granted. Or let's just take it more tangible. We've got a, we've got a copy of God's Word in our own language. Most of us have five or six copies at home. You just take it for granted. Or, or even grace. We forget how wonderful, unbelievably good the grace of God is in Jesus. Familiarity breeds contempt. That's what was happening in Nazareth. Now, as he says that, the camera angle swings over to Jesus in verses 5 and 6. Watch what happens here. Mark tells us he could, know, he could do no mighty work there except he laid his hands on a few sick people and he healed them and he marveled because of their unbelief. Now, it could do nobody works. That is not saying that he didn't have power. He obviously has power. He's already stilled storms. Chapter 5 ends with him raising someone from the dead. He has the capacity, but Jesus doesn't do miracles as a magic show. He doesn't just do tricks. Jesus doesn't work where faith is not. In fact, there are only two times in the Bible where you ever hear Jesus described as marveling at something. Both times have to do with faith. Luke chapter 7, the centurion, he comes to Jesus because his servant is about to die, and he tells Jesus, I'm a man under authority. I understand authority. If you will, you don't come to my house because I'm not worthy to have you in my house. If you'll just say the word, my servant will be healed. And Luke tells us, Jesus marveled that man's faith. Now he's here at his hometown. Marveling at their lack of faith. It's a tragedy. It's a tragic thing to think of what Jesus could have done. Such a tragic thing because if you read the, the end of verse 6, the end of it, the rest of verse 6, the rest of verse 6 tells us that Jesus just simply moved on. We don't hear anything else about Nazareth. Are you, are you a disciple of Jesus? A follower of Jesus? How do you know if you are? Have you, have you placed your faith 
in the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus. That is your claim to Christianity. Have you trusted that at the cross, Jesus was your substitute? That's Christianity. From that emanates something, the grace of God in your life. Has it formed humility? Is there growing in your life? Are you growing in humility? Are you, you're learning more information about who God is through the Bible. You're growing as a disciple. You, you have someone to imitate. You have someone that, that is discipling you or you are discipling. Are, are you ready to walk the hard path of following Jesus? Isn't that what he said? And that's what Jesus said about discipleship. Matthew 16, 24. Matthew says, Jesus told his disciples, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross, and follow me. Christ today calls you to come and follow. With your heads bowed this morning, so go to the Lord in a time of commitment and prayer to join me as we pray. Everybody has, everybody has an opinion about Jesus. Jesus Christ is Lord. I'm asking you to come and surrender your life to the Lordship of Jesus. We sing this morning, it's a good time. It's a good time for you to come have a pastor pray with you. Give your life to Christ. Come and surrender your life to Jesus. Maybe you want to come and pray for someone you know that has rejected, just outright rejected Jesus. You want to come and just pray for them. Or maybe it's you. You want to pray for your own growth as a, as a man, or as a woman, growing as a disciple. Maybe it's humility. Maybe you just need humility. Pray and, and ask God to give that to you. Father, we pray in the name of Jesus and give you thanks Thank you that you brought us together as a church, as disciples. Pray that you find us faithful. Pray that you would work in the hearts of men and women today. Make them strong, Lord. Make us strong. Lord, thank you for Hickory Grove. Thank you for this church. I pray you find us faithful. In Jesus' name we pray.